Well, good morning and welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. We continue this morning by looking at what might be the most critical component to the brokenness that so many people feel. And it's what both clinicians and the secular practice of psychology have either redefined or completely abandoned. It's the subject of sin. Thanks for joining with us as we attempt to build a biblical foundation for sin's influence in our souls and how we can navigate through this world with the joy of God's transforming work in our lives. Emily and I lived in the Bahamas. We would get a chance to go to the beach from time to time. And there was this one time uh, there in the surf as the waves crashed and rolled it over was an old four by four log, you know, like a treated piece of lumber that you would use with construction as a as a post or an anchor. And it was all battered and tattered and knocked around the uh, the the salt in the water had eroded. Uh, some of the fibers within the wood had some scuff marks on it. And I, for whatever reason, picked it up. I thought it was the coolest thing. And it was a little bit later. Uh, I, um, I wanted to make a, a present for Emily. And I decided to make her a jewelry box out of that piece of wood. And I, I brought it here today. This, is, this was the exact piece of wood and what it looks like. You can see all the little holes in it. But this... Uh, this little piece of wood that was just trash, uh, that was discarded, that was being ruined by the surf and, and the ways of the world, um, now has all of her treasures in it. And jewels and diamonds, yes, that's right. Emeralds and rubies and gold. And, uh, all right in here. I, I sometimes wonder if, uh, if you could personify this little piece of wood, uh, what it thinks of its uh, new reclaimed use in the world. You know, for whatever reason, and uh, we don't know what caused it to have to uh, be found where it was in the surf, uh, you know, maybe it was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, it, the, the contractor put it maybe on the back of the truck and there just was a pothole and a bump hit and it flew off the back of the truck and that was it. And ever since then, it's just been tumbled around by the surf. Or maybe it was a big storm in its life. Maybe at one point it had a purpose and it was strong, but the hurricane winds hit and the waves knocked it loose. And for that reason, it's been adrift ever since. Or, you know, maybe there was a carpenter at one point that cut off this end of a larger piece and said, uh, you're worthless now, you're junk, you, you serve no purpose, and so it was simply discarded. But whatever it was, its nature was changed because I came along. I came along and I turned it from trash into something even greater than treasure, something that now holds treasure. Our series is one that is attempting to define for the Christian a biblical framework for how we think of mental health. And every one of us in here could tell some story how the storms of life or the words that hurt from somebody or maybe just being in the wrong place at the wrong time has caused a wound in our hearts has maybe caused a way in which we think of ourselves, have framed our own identity as just being beaten, being torn, being dissolved by the rough waves of this world. And yet God doesn't look at you and see trash. He sees treasure. He sees something greater than treasure. He looks at you and he sees one, a child of his that he longs to redeem so that you become a vessel of the greatest treasure there is. The spirit of the living God to dwell within you. The problem for us is that too often, even after we have been reclaimed by God, it's sometimes easy to fall back into the rut of old habits Uh, patterns of thinking or the deception that comes from this world and how foolish it would be for this box again if I could personify it for it to think that it deserves to be thrown back right how foolish for it for it has been reclaimed 
And this is, the, this is the tenor of the theme that I want to share with us as we're continuing to develop our understanding of a biblical framework, is that the greatest thing that I have seen from God's word that will aid the person who lives in the trash heap of this world to live victoriously in Christ is to reframe how we think. That's the greatest thing that I see in the New Testament. There there is no shortage of 40 or 50 passages that we could turn to that find this theme drawn out time after time. But for this morning, we're going to look at probably the number one, the, the, the greatest passage in the New Testament that speaks to your reclamation by God to be now a treasured vessel that contains his treasure for the world. And it comes in Romans chapter 12. As we have opportunity to, to look there, <clears throat> we're going to be really studying three themes this morning. You can't just start with reclamation. That's where we end. But the way you get to reclamation comes through the doctrine of transformation. And unfortunately, you really can't understand transformation until you have a solid understanding of sin. And so this morning, that's going to be our effort to again, once more, develop a framework, some foundational ideas that we can build a theology on for how to address the nature of mental health in the church, in our lives, and then how we respond to it in our world. But before we do, I would like to review a little bit. Uh, I want to make sure that we haven't lost where we've been over the past couple of Sundays. You can see I'm, I'm rusty running the service myself, so a little bit of reminder might do us some good. Uh, first thing I want to remind you of is the illustration I used Phil for when we came up here, that as we're talking about stress, as we're talking about mental health, there's two categories, acute and accumulated. You, you'll remember that acute mental health or soul strain, as I'm referring to it here, is the kind that has manifested itself presently. I, I am presently unable to function in a healthy manner because the invisible part of my nature is, is rent and is wrestling. That is, that is acute. It, it, is, it is visible right now. Some people have that. Many people have it, even undiagnosed. But it's the second category that all of us have, which is accumulated soul strain and a, a need for us to always be uh, juggling the, the life that comes to us, whether good or bad. And sometimes, sometimes you can get to a point where I just can't move any further because I'm just overwhelmed. So that was our first foundation. I want to make sure we understand that there are two categories moving forward for us to understand this. Uh, second, we looked at the source of uh, mental pathology, the, the disease that comes with the invisible part of our soul. And it comes in two forms, organically and functionally. Organic um, mental pathology is the kind that's as a result of a, a physical ailment. So examples of this might be a, um, a problem with your thyroid. Uh, it might be something in your nervous system that's just a little wonky. It might be something as uh, common as postpartum um, uh, depression that comes from uh, giving birth, right? Th these are all not, not problems that deal with the heart. They're all sourced in the body. And then there's a second category of uh, depression and angst that is not from the body. It's actually from the heart. It comes from um, the invisible components of our life. Um, <clears throat> I want to also remind you of the nature of humanity that we are a trichotomy of three distinct uh, sections. We're made of a body, we're made of a soul that runs the body, and we're made of a spirit that has renewed in the image of its creator by the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit. So it's the Spirit of God that helps reframe the body and the soul. Uh, the beauty of our faith is you get it right now with your soul. This is, the, this is the wondrous calling of being part of God's family that I now belong invisibly to God's people, even though my body yet will undergo death because of sin. Yet the great promise yet to be seen is ultimately a Jesus' return. Come on, what's Easter all about? Resurrection. My body will rise, renewed, made in strength and in power, incorruptible. That day is future for us, but we get the soul rebirth now. 
And both of those come as a product of God's Holy Spirit. Uh, One of the last things that I'd like to remind us of is the nature of the soul contains the full complexity of that intertwined human experience. So everything from the chemicals in our brain, um, those neurotransmitters, to your circadian rhythm and how much vitamin D you get from the sun, um, to your um, will and the spiritual component of your life. It's all, do you remember the web? Do you remember that illustration? We had everybody hold on to those. And if you pull on one, what happens to the others? They all get pulled out of whack as well. So I want to submit to the church as a point of reminder this morning that as we're studying mental health, there is no one single answer. You can't just prescribe Prozac and think everything's going to get better. Um, There is a complexity to the human creature that requires a holistic surrender of all that I am to King Jesus. Remember that? You guys with me? Give me an amen if you're with me on this. Remember this? Good. Last week, just again as a reminder, three questions for a healthy soul. I, uh, Church, I've been asking myself these questions repeatedly over the last two weeks. How am I doing with this? What am I pursuing? Who am I listening to? And then what is it that I dwell upon? Because it doesn't matter where you fall within the spectrum of depression, every single person will find themselves drawn in a healthy, healthy manner or an unhealthy manner in in regards to your soul based upon how you answer these questions. And sometimes I even find that depression is a sort of latency where I just don't care. I mean, I'm not even upset about anything. I'm I'm just kind of apathetic. And that's sometimes the visible manifestation of depression. And do you know what? I failed at the first question. I failed at it. Because my soul needs to long for God the way the deer pants for the water. And so I have to find myself with something to get me back on that right track. And that's what we're talking about this morning. It's transformation. It's a dwelling upon God's reclamation of who you are in Christ. This is the greatest tool that we are given by the Spirit's help to battle negative mental health and soul strain and really find ourselves flourishing victoriously. So to begin with, I want to offer us some some new categories. We're going to start by uh, highlighting two false approaches when it comes to dealing with reclamation, sin, and transformation. Uh, The first is a hypersensitivity towards sin. Maybe this is your experience in churches. Maybe... Uh, maybe you've even felt this yourself, that there is this idea that I am condemned because of my sin. Uh, There's half of that that's 100% true, except the answer sometimes becomes completely incorrect, which is this false idea of you just need to try harder. Have you ever heard that before? Have you ever felt just like coming to church is just like getting beaten down every week, like you just need to try harder and try harder? And the problem uh, at the root of this is that it becomes sin management that rests upon a foundation of human effort. There's there's actually a theological or philosophical error that creeps in. I haven't lost you guys yet, have I? Everybody with me? It's the idea that the human creature is by nature neutral. That's the idea. Like, I, I can... I can manage. I, I can keep my head above water if I just tread harder. That is wrong. That's completely wrong. The human creature is born into depravity by the curse of sin. We are not at a neutral standing. And so if you have made that incorrect uh, uh, assumption as a foundation, many, many people look at sin with a concept of hypersensitivity. These are people who tend to look inward, uh, preachers who um, focus on just controlling a specific set of behaviors. Uh, We practice self-condemnation that leads us into further mental pathologies and legalism in the church, a concept that my righteous standing before God is something that I can create. Leads to external conformity, a list of do's and don'ts, isolation, judgment of self and judgment of others, and a false sense of self-righteousness. You know what it is? It's the Christian 
who's forever looking backwards. Do you have sin in your life? Yes or no? Absolutely. The devil wants to remind you of it all the time. And the false gospel has you and I only and always looking backwards at our sin. And then we create these stupid rules, like you need to dress a certain way and talk a certain way, and that makes you righteous before God. This shows up in the New Testament as well. This from the church in Colossae. Paul says, uh, here's your problems. These are the rules in Colossae. Do not handle, do not touch, do not taste. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands. They're not from God. They come from human teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. This is, the, this is an error when it comes to sin. Hypersensitivity is wrong. Um, you'll notice if you can fall off this side of uh, the road in this ditch, there's an opposite end of the spectrum as well, which has to do with the dismissal of sin. This one has been in the middle of the last century for the last about 50 to 70 years, um, uh, introduced by psychologists by a misrepresentation of sin. What they've done is they focused on the human concept of sin. Ooh, did you see the sh- subtle shift there? Sin is not something that's real. In the real world, it only lives here. It's only because humans have derived a concept of sin. I mean, you don't see dogs and cats and deer and fish repenting, do you? It's only, it's only humans that carry this weird sense of guilt. And so if we can address that and really begin to teach people from a, a psychotherapy position, you're fine. You're really fine. There's no such thing as sin. You are fine just the way you are, that the error that has creeped in is a dismissal of sin. And so you have people saying, uh, I blame my uh, nurture, uh, nurturing environment, my, my, my per- parental modeling that I was shown. That's where blame is to be placed. Or you'll hear people say, I was, I was born this way. And so it's a genetic problem. I, I place the blame there. Except maybe you can easily as I can think, where does blame show up in our Bible with sin? Who was the first one to place blame when evidenced with his sin? Do you remember his name? In the garden? It was Adam. God said, what is it you've done? And Adam said, it was her. Was it me? What's the error there? Error is a dismissal of sin. Listen to John as he encourages the church in 1 John chapter 1. He says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. Not helpful in a clinical area. Not not helpful in a psychology level. You're deceiving yourself. The truth is not in you. Again, in verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. And his word is not in us. And so what we need to do this morning is we need to develop a correct understanding of sin, a biblical foundation that doesn't look at its hypersensitivity that says, I'm sin and all my past, that's all I am is sin. That's wrong. And we can't look at a dismissal either that just says sin doesn't exist. I'm just sick and I need medicine. Do you know what the biblical model is? You ready? It's sin is sickness. It's not falling off one end or the other to dismiss sin or claim all I am is sin, but rather to recognize the root of my sickness in my life. It comes from sin. It doesn't come from within me. It's something external to God's creation of the human creature made in his image. My sickness is sin. I want to put two phrases up here on the screen. Uh, early in the 3rd and 4th century, there was a heresy that, uh, that began in the church in regards to sin. They would, uh, we would need to ask, which of these two is the correct statement? I am a sinner only because I sin, or I sin because I am a sinner. 
And, and the answer to this is, is going to be that foundational theological and, and philosophical understanding of how you make sense of sin that leads to either terrible practices when it comes to mental health or an honest assessment that gives you the greatest weapon you have to battle mental health. Paul says this, as you heard Jeannie read it for us this morning already in Romans 7, as it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. Now, if I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it's what? You have a disease. I have a disease. It's foreign to God's good creation, but it has worked its way through every cell of my body and every agent of my invisible faculties. I have a sickness that's called sin. And therefore, I'm not a sinner just because I sin, but rather... That's why I sin, because of this illness that I have, because of the sickness of the depravity of mankind that has affected everybody. Are you guys on, are you with me? Are you, are you with me on the same page here? This is critical. If we get this wrong, you, you will lead, it will lead to, to conclusions that will not help the Christian. They will either bring further condemnation with a forever looking backwards and a hypersensitivity towards sin. Or you will think, it's just a concept in your mind and there really is no such thing as sin, to which case you will never find transformation. So this is, this is a foundational understanding for us to begin with, one that we'll return to again in the future. I'd like to offer us, therefore, further a couple of categories to make sense uh, of sin. And by the way, as I was thinking through this, there's so many that I'm not included um, uh, not including sins of omission and sins of commission. We could talk about that another time. I'm not including the false categories the Catholic Church creates with venial and mortal. We're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks as well. So these, these are just some rough and ready categories, but ones to which I would like for us to at least have talked through on a Sunday morning uh, so that we can be on the same page. Three categories of sin uh, that are drawn from the Old Testament passages quoted in the New. Sin, transgression, and iniquity. You'll see this in Psalm 32 from David. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Again, in Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. How do we understand these three categories? Um, as a footnote, too, for the content of this message, uh, a lot of my information is coming out of this book, Psychology, Theology, and Spirit, Spirituality, by Mark McMinn, uh, Ph.D. This book from Carl Menninger, um, Whatever Happened or Whatever Became of Sin. He's a medical doctor. And uh, this book, Mastering Sin, by a guy named Maury Meyer, uh, um, VCD. That means very cool dude. So, um, a, lot, a lot of content coming from that. Sin, transgression, and iniquity. Sin is used uh, chata. Sounds like uh, a Hebrew sneeze is the word. Uh, It means having missed the mark. Used uh, over 600 times in the Old Testament. Uh, The the next one, transgression, is a word also used more than 600 times. Uh, The root of the word means to, to kind of pass the wrong way. To, to go the wrong direction is what a transgression is. And iniquity is a word that's further used frequently in the Old Testament. Uh, the, the derivation of the word itself comes from having intentionally left the right course. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to provide a metaphor for us to think of these uh, three categories. <clears throat> brought with me a, a tool here this morning. Uh, because the very first um, message here with a category for sin is that it's missing the mark. And so I brought a target with me today, too. I don't know if the green dot's quite in the right spot, but close enough. What do you guys think? Hunters, what do you think? Good enough? Penny, is it good enough? Yeah. All right. So I'm going to have CJ hold this right here for me. Let me go get my arrow. <laughs> when, when we're talking about sin, and this is the metaphor for your life, your, your life... Is being shot in a direction. Sin, the first word we have, means missing the mark. And understand this, that all of sin carries something in common. It means that you're separated from God. All of it. Every one of these results 
in our separation from God. But the first one, sin, literally means you missed. Hunters, you ever been there with me? Come on, Nick, be honest. Never? Yeah? Yeah. That happened to me uh, this past fall. Man, biggest buck I've seen on that 80 acres in years. And I could not find him after I shot. I missed. I missed the mark. That's called, scripturally, sin. Transgression is the idea that the arrow, as it flies from the weapon, follows a path. Transgression is not the target. It's not the bow. Transgression is the path that it followed. It's the way that sometimes somebody can do the wrong thing, even if it was for the right reasons. You still did the wrong thing. This is when somebody would accuse you of, well, it's not what you said. It was the way you said it. Yeah, that still happens as a product of sin in our lives. There's a name for it. It's called a transgression. And then the third one, iniquity. Iniquity has to do with the aim. Iniquity is not the direction of the arrow. It's not the the arrow on the target. It's from the start that as I drew back, I was drawing and I was pointing in the wrong direction. That's iniquity. And whether it is sin or transgression or iniquity, all of it leads to the same result as one author has put it. At one end is our failure in attempting to connect. At the other end is our willingness to disconnect. Whether we fail at attempting to connect or we intentionally disconnect, the result is the same. Separation. Thank you, CJ. I've got to find somewhere to put this now. There are three categories in our lives because you have, you've missed the mark. Amen. I have missed the mark. And that has been a product both of the path of my actions and the intentions of my heart. And we need to make sure that we're giving overview to each of these categories if we're truly going to understand sin. Three spheres of corruption, active, passive, and corporate. Three spheres Active sin, you might also classify simply as personal sin. Do you sin? Yes or no? Yeah, that, well, it's sourced within me. James says it comes from the evil desires within my heart. And so if the judge were to pass judgment, guilty could be declared not based on anything external, but it's active sin in my life. We, we experience sin in other ways, though. It's not just that you make bad decisions and you sin. It's that you have had people sin against you. No amens from that, right? Yeah. If, that stinks. Like, that's a really, really crummy part of this world, is that I not only face the temptation in my own life, but I have people who actively sin against me. And so there's this passiveness in my life, having been a recipient of abuse and harm and sin. And then thirdly, uh, I simply have labeled here corporate because whether it's done by somebody else or it's done by me myself, we live in a world of sin. It's all around us all the time. There is no neutrality when it comes to the issue and subject of sin. Whether it's active in our life personally or passive having been done to us or corporate sin is like a fart in a submarine. I'll let you think about that one for a minute. Like it's all around you. And it stinks. You with me? All right. So, is it any wonder then why I feel so bad? Is it any wonder then why my soul is rent and distraught In my life, this we have from Paul in Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what do we do with all this? I'd like to offer to you again this morning the greatest weapon I know of. When the Bible speaks about how we handle the posture of our soul, the primary theme that it deals with is a transformed life that then embraces the reclamation of God. And there is no better passage for this. The Romans chapter 12. Will you please turn there with me? We're going to look at two short verses. Romans chapter 12. We're going to make a couple of observations that I'm entitling 
principles of transformation. If we are going to be transformed, much like this jewelry box, to be made new and then to think new in our lives, how do we do that? What are the principles so that I can put those into practice in my life? Um, By the way, once we get through with these five, we're going to look at one New Testament passage in the Gospels. And then we're done for this morning. So just as, you, as you're charting out where we're headed today, five observations, and then to conclude one passage of the Gospel of Luke. Number one, if you look with me in Romans chapter 12, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. By the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. Number one I have up here on this screen is that it starts with grace. If we are going to find ourselves transformed and having access to this greatest weapon of reclamation, it starts with grace. It doesn't start with you need to try harder. There's this really awesome quote. Uh, grace doesn't make you better. Which, by the way, is one of the greatest uh, problems within modern day psychotherapy. Having dismissed sin, we're trying to help people practice self-care so that they can become better. Hear me loud and clear. Grace doesn't make you better. Grace makes you new. It makes you brand new. And there is a world of difference between I just need to feel better and I'm a new creation. It starts with grace. You'll see the same theme uh, in a couple of other passages. This in 1 Corinthians uh, 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. Romans 8 verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This, this little four by four piece of broken wood tumbling around in the surf could do nothing on its own until who came along? And then I picked it up. It didn't do anything to deserve that. I made that decision. All me, all the craftsmen. And it was made new. You'll see this theme in these passages. Do you see the commonality? If you're in Christ, if he has possessed you, you're brand new. You're not better. You're better than better. You're brand new. I think sometimes uh, if there's an illustration of using a broken uh, snow shovel, we had this one snow shovel that every time you, you would push and you would uh, lift it to turn, the handle would just spin and the, you know, the bucket part would just sit there. Man, that stinking snow shovel, there's nothing I could do to get it to work properly. Do you know what I needed? I needed a new snow shovel. That's what I needed. I didn't need it to feel better. It was broken. I need a new one. And this is what we need to understand, that when it comes to transformation, you do not get an avenue towards transformation unless you start with grace. Unless you start with God's undeserved love in your life, because God and God alone has dealt with our sins. It's not try harder. It's your made brand new. Number two, the principle of transformation is it's not optional. By the way, let me have you just draw your attention back into the text on the first one here. I I forgot to point this out to you, but Romans 1, it says, I urge you, brothers, therefore, in view of God's mercy. What does Paul start with? He starts with what God has done. He starts with grace. The second thing I want you to see is that it's not optional. Um, Your scripture might read a little different than mine in verse 1. Mine says, I urge you. Does your Bible have something similar to that? Uh, If you have a fancy Bible, it might say, I beseech you. That's a really cool word, right? Uh, The Greek word here means to urge, to implore, to exhort, to appeal, to encourage, to earnestly plead, to beg. You get the word? This is not a, hey, if you feel like it, you know, if you get around to it. That's not this. That's not what this is. This is, I'm, I'm begging you. When you look at what God has done. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. It's not an option. In fact, there's another phrase that's used here in Greek, and as I have it in English, 
I'm, I, I'm, I'm a little bit out of step with how the NIV uh, renders it. It's at the end of verse 1. Look with me at the end of verse 1. Uh, Paul says, in my Bible, this is your spiritual act of worship. Does your Bible say something similar to that? That's, that's just not a really great translation of it. Um, the word that's used there for worship uh, is one that's referring to the religious duties of the priest. That's the word that's used. And the word before it that they're translating as spiritual is the word that means logical. Like, th- this, is the, this is the reasonable thing to do. Like, this is the obvious thing to do when you want to worship God. It would be like this in my illustration with the snow shovel. Let's say my son's out there using the bad shovel. Dad, it doesn't work. Every time I go to lift it, snow falls right off. And I go to him and I'm like, look at this thing. Brand new. Here you go, son. And I hand it to him. What should he do? What's the logical thing he should do now? He's got a brand new one. So shovel, that's right. Get busy with it. That's the phrase here that's used. When, when, when Paul says this is your spiritual act of worship, what he means is this is like the obvious, most logical thing. This is what you do next, meaning it's not optional. Are you guys with me on that? I, 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 I'm, I hope I'm making sense to you on this because there's no version of receiving the greatest weapon for dealing with spiritual health, mental health in our lives with Christians thinking, yeah, I'll just go to church and then leave. That's all it is. Or maybe I won't go. Or maybe I really don't need it. This is not an option. If you're going to find transformation, you have got to get busy turning your heart towards God. And he tells us exactly how to do that next. It's the third one here. It says it requires complete surrender. You'll see this listed out again in verse 1. Paul's command here is to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. We need to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. This is a big problem in Christian culture because so many Christians think serving God happens one day a week. And that's it. And that's wrong. God wants a complete sacrifice. Complete sacrifice. All of you. The illustration that I use is one getting onto a boat. If, if the dock is right here, and I have one, fo- one foot on the boat and one foot on the dock, how long can I stay like this? <laughs> you, get, you have to get all the way on. You have to get all the way on. And when Paul says, offer your bodies, he actually doesn't simply just mean your body, even though he does. He's, he's saying, all of you, all of you. Do you remember the illustration with the web? We had, we had Jim Husing carrying the sign King Jesus. And where did King Jesus belong? In the web of the complexity of the human. On one side, just on the church side, or where did he belong? In the very middle of it. King Jesus needs to rule all that we are. And so what is our logical service to God when we look at grace? Well, it's to say, I'm all yours. I'm all yours. When you had your kids, when they were brand new, did the doctor hand you all of them? Grace, you're, you're, the, you're the newest mother we have here, right? Did you get all of Beckett or did the doctor keep part of them? All of them, right? This is what God wants in his adoption of you as well. He wants all of you. Number four, uh, transformation. The principle requires a recognition and a rejection. You need to be able to recognize and then reject worldly patterns, habits, systems, philosophies, definitions, traditions. I could carry that list on further, but I think you get the point. Look at me in verse two. Paul says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. In fact, uh, the Greek word here is not often translated with world. There's another word that you could use in Greek to mean world. He uses the word age. Don't conform to the pattern of this age that we live in. God has called you heavenward. He's, he's asked of you to think of your citizenship where Jesus rules and reigns right now. And so you trade the old way of thinking for the new way of living. The only way you're going to be able to do that is if you're able to first recognize the way the world wants to conform you and get you to think. Have you watched the news lately? Have you watched any of the shows that are offered to you on Netflix or CBS or NBC? Right? Whatever the 
particulars of entertainment that are being offered, they are designed by the world to shape how you think. You have to recognize them. You have to say, this is not what God, this is not how God thinks. This doesn't bring glory to God because the world is trying to squeeze you and to conform you. Have you ever heard this from your kids? Well, everyone's doing it. Pastors don't like to hear that one either, you know. Just because it's prevalent in our world doesn't mean that God approves of it. You, you through God's spirit living in you, you must recognize it and reject it. Don't be conformed to the way of this age. Fifthly, lastly, it requires a mind that has been made new by the reclamation of God. God has reclaimed you as his property. He has written his name upon your heart. And so therefore, you are no longer what you were. You are no longer under self-management. You belong to the master of all creation. God has reclaimed you. And when Paul says, you know what you do with this? You fix yourself upon it with your mind. With your mind, you have to change how you think of what it means to be treasured by God. I want to give you a couple of passages for this one. This is the big one, guys. This is it. This is the greatest weapon that you and I have. Ephesians 4, Paul says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted in its deceitful desires and to be made new where? In the attitude of your minds. How I think of myself as no longer a child of the devil, a child of this world, an American-born post-enlightenment. I belong to God. I'm God's son, claimed by him. That's the attitude of my mind. And then to put on the new self, which is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. This from Colossians. Don't lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed how? Where do you keep knowledge? In books. No. Where do you keep knowledge? Right here in my mind. It's how I understand who I am. Being renewed in the image of its creator. Um, this is the most beautiful thing with grace. I really have to emphasize this one to you. It is a, it's a miracle of God's mercy. He doesn't simply forgive you. Forgiveness is absolutely part of God's grace. And if that's all God ever did for you, you and I would already have more than we could ever pay back. But that's not all he did. God didn't just bring you from the depths and raise you to neutral and say, now try harder next time. That is not the gospel. That is not how God has treated you. Do you know what he did? He has declared you innocent by making you righteous. With Jesus. That is his grace. He doesn't just lift you to this point of saying, now now you can try harder, you can manage on your own. He has seated you with Christ, his son, in the heavenlies. And as he looks upon you, he claims you as beautiful. I mean, look at this thing, right? It's, it has all, all of the little weirdness of the cracks and the holes. Do you know what these are to me now? Do you know what these are to Emily? They're beautiful. It's, it's lovely. I, I have taken that which was once used for abuse and I have now turned it into something that shows the love and wonder and craftsmanship of the creator. God does the same thing with you. He doesn't just put you back on the truck and say, try not to fall off next time. He brings you all the way into his home and adopts you as his child. I want you to see that from these. Amen. Thank you. That's worth two. Let's clap for God. On that one. Amen. I want you to see this um, from these passages, uh, 2 Corinthians 5. uh, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This passage from Romans 8, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened in the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. By the way, this is saying the same thing this is saying. 
And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who don't live according to the flesh, but who live according to the Spirit. God did not just bring you from the depths to neutral. He placed you all the way up with Jesus. That's who you are. And now, the greatest weapon you have against the sin of this world that will destroy your soul is to reclaim that truth defined by God. I wanted to share with you this one last passage. This comes from Philippians chapter 3. Paul, in talking about resurrection, says, Not that I have already attained all of this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what's behind. How great is that, guys? Did anyone need that this morning at church? I need this, right? Forget what's behind. The devil will come and say, yeah, you're condemned. And say, so what, devil? You might be right. Jesus saves me. I'm going to forget that which was behind, and I'm going to press on. I'm going to strain towards what's ahead. I press on to the goal to win the prize for which God has called me, heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. If on some point you think differently, God will make that clear to you as well. Only... Let us live up to what we have already been given in Christ, what we have already attained. There's a story in the New Testament that I think will help us as we understand how to apply this into our lives. Will you turn with me to Luke's gospel? We're going we're gonna to wrap up this morning. Um, I'm just going to read a couple of verses from a story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15. It's about two sons and a father. And I want you to see how the picture in the New Testament that Jesus offers will give you and I the pathway to, recl- to, to uh, wielding this weapon of reclamation through applicational transformation. Uh, this is Luke 15. Luke 15, starting in verse 11. 1490. Page 1490 in the Pew Bibles. Luke 15, starting in verse 11, Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, and he set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating. No one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. And so he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. All right, let's pause the story there because I want you to see, I want you to see applicationally how we get access to this. The first, the way we navigate in a world that isn't calibrated to see sin, the first thing we do is we embrace confession over blame. You have to start there. What is confession? Confession means to sorrow over your sin. It doesn't mean that you dwell on it with hypersensitivity. It doesn't mean that you say, there ain't no such thing as sin. No, you call it what God calls it. And you sorrow over it. Did you see that in the story? Did you see that? At what point? Look with me back in the text. At what point do you see the confession in the heart of this rebellious younger son? Where he says, I'm a sinner. Do you see that? In verse 17, he says he came to his senses. He started, he started to recognize it, right? He says he's not worthy. 
He says that he has sinned in the middle of verse 18. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. That's confession. Church, if you're ever going to find transformation, if you're ever going to get the weapon of reclamation, it starts with confession. I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. I know I deserve God's punishment and I sorrow over my sin. I don't hide it anymore. I lay it bare and I admit it. I confess it. Not to some magic priest or imam or whatever. You confess it before God and you confess it in your heart. I want you to see the second step is repentance. To repent means to to have a turning of your mind, a changing in your heart. And so do you see where the son, do you see where this younger brother, do you see when he turned? It says in verse 20, so he left the pigs. Do you see what he did? He got up and turned the direction he was heading, squandering his his inheritance and wealth. He now turns and he heads back to his father. It means to turn around, to turn back. You know, when we're facing difficulties in our souls, uh, the, the number one win that the devil most often gets is to keep you away from God's people. That's like the first thing that the devil will do. Do you know the very best place for sinners is? Come on, say grace right here. Grace Segola, of course, best place. Welcome, sinners, welcome. Come and find the judgment of God paid on that instrument of death for you. But you have to come. You have to change. You have to turn. So confession is first. Repentance is second. And then the third is a renewal of your mind according to God's reclamation. The way God defines you. And I want you to see in this story exactly what happened. This younger son says, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me like a slave. Make me like a servant because then I'll at least have food. And so he goes to his father. And the picture of the father changes everything. Because the father doesn't listen at all. Isn't it awesome? He, he doesn't even get it out. In fact, if you look at the text, the, the place where he says in verse 19, make me like your hired men. If you look at his speech in verse 21, he doesn't even get a chance to say it. Because the father embraces him not as a slave. The father embraces him now as a son. Church, hear me loud and clear. You will find yourself breaking the shackles of internal soul torment and mental health, all those ailments, the further that you claim and cling to God's definition that I am a child of God. That is who I am. I want you to know that God desires to take that which is broken in this world and discard it and to remake it and to craft it in such a way that it will now contain and be the vessel of God's greatest treasures. Amen. Amen. Will you pray with me this morning?